Good morning. This morning's scripture reading comes from the book of Mark, chapter 3, verses 7 through 35. I'll be reading from the ESV. And it reads, Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him, and he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them, not to make him known. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those who he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boadnerges, that is, the sons of thunder, Andrew, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again, so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, They went out to seize him, for they were saying, He is out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he casts out the demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself... That house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man, and whoever blasphemes Whatever blasphemies they utter, but whatever, whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of eternal sin, for they were saying he has an unclean spirit. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. This is God's word. Then I would hope you keep your Bibles turned to Mark or open to Mark chapter 3 as we continue our journey 
through the gospel of Mark together. Man, one of the things that I love, if I could just sort of frame up our time, is the, the Mark's gospel begins with this profound prologue, right? A prologue is there to sort of uh, get you to understand what you are about to read, right? I think of uh, the book that I, uh, a book I read uh, early this year called uh, The Alchemist, right? And it begins with this prologue about narcissism, which is like strangely uh, accurate and, and also a strange prologue, but it's really accurate for the rest of the book because the rest of the book is this story asking the question, can one be selfish and good? Right. So with Mark's gospel, he begins with this emphatic declaration. Mark 1 1 Mark begins this emphatic declaration. This is the good news of Jesus Christ, the son of God. Immediately we are confronted with who Jesus is. He is the son of God. But that title, son of God, is not necessarily clear to not only the original Jews at Jesus's time, but the original readers of this text. That title, son of God, is not clear. And here's why. All throughout the Old Testament, there have been people with the title sons of God. Not only people, just beings. Angels were called the sons of God. The entire Israelites as a people, as a nation, as a race were called the sons of God. Hezekiah and Ephraim, King David, they were called sons of God. And so when you look at the the Jews of Jesus's time experiencing Jesus, the son of God, and not quite getting it, you can understand understand because the question needs to be asked what kind of son of God is Jesus what kind of son of God is Jesus is he like David is he like the angels is he like Ephraim what kind of son of God is Jesus you yourself could not fully understand this title of son of God Jesus Christ the son of God And so what Mark does for us is he explores that. He sort of opens it up for us in the first two chapters of Mark. But here's, here's the truth. You could, in a very real sense, find the answer to that question. What kind of son of God is Jesus? You could find the answer to that question and still respond as Jesus's own people did in that moment. Completely neutral. Even as a believer, it is completely possible for you to respond to who Jesus is in certain areas of your life with complete indifference, passive, unrealized neutrality. Now, let me be clear. What feels like indifference, what feels like neutrality, these these are charitable words. The reality is opposition, denial, neglect. So let us ask this morning, what kind of king is Jesus? And then we're going to ask, how are we responding to him? How are we responding? Not just this morning, but every morning. But for those of you who've been with us through this entire series, the first question is sort of already answered to you, right? 
You can think back on all of the studies of chapter 1 and, and chapter 2, and you can say, well, I know the Son of God that Jesus is. I can put this together rather quickly. He's the Son that pleases the Father so much that at his baptism, his Father declared, this is my Son who I'm well pleased. This, he, he's the kind of Son that defeated Satan's temptations in the wilderness while fasting. He's the Son who calls himself King and ushers in a new kingdom. He's the kind of son who has the authority to teach in the synagogue better than the scribes. He's the kind of son who has the authority to cast out demons and heal fevers and make the lame walk. He's the kind of son who can touch the leper and be clean. He's the kind of son who can forgive sins. He's the new wine and the new cloth. He's the groom at the wedding feast. He's Lord of the Sabbath and Lord over all. Mark is communicating that is the Son of God who is before you. Amen. You would say, I, I, I can put it together. That is Jesus, the Son of God. But what Mark does now in chapter 3 is he's going to help us search ourselves to see how we are responding to this King. I think of C.S. Lewis's words in Mere Christianity. He says, it's a long quote, I'm sorry, but he says, I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. Here's what they say. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he is a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him or kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left us open to that, and he did not intend to. Well, C.S. Lewis is saying, it's it, how you respond to Jesus is birthed out of, is a reflection of who you believe him to be. How you respond to him, how you worship him, how you've surrendered your life is a reflection of who you believe him to be. So I've titled our time this morning, Crazy or King. Who is Jesus to you? Because that will determine your response. Who you believe him to be will determine how you worship him and if you worship him. So there are four warnings for us to consider in the text this morning, four postures of the heart that can be realized whether you're in the faith or an observer of the faith. But before we continue, can I ask that you pray for me as I pray for you as together we hear from God this morning? Yeah? All right, let's pray. God, we give you thanks for the power of your word. That it can penetrate the hardest heart. And it can comfort the most tender heart. 
God, we know that your word is true. We ask that we receive your word this morning. Would you give me clarity of speech and thought as the preacher this morning and gift the congregation with attentiveness and grace for my errors in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. Speaking of Lewis, I began this year, uh, some of you know this story, I began this year reading the Chronicles of Narnia with my children, which I'm sort of shooting myself in the foot right now because we're like a month behind on our readings, so they're going to remember now. But anyway, we... (laughs) We're reading through the Chronicles of Narnia. We finished The Magician's Nephew, and The Magician's Nephew has, like, um, let me exaggerate, has, like, the best scene in all the books. Um, That's only because I haven't read all the books, so give me that grace. Um, But we we finished The Magician's Nephew, and, and in this scene that I love so very much is the beginning, the creation of Narnia, Right? Aslan is creating this world, okay? Now, Aslan in these books is a massive, beautiful, terrifying lion. The adjective that you you choose to describe him is basically dependent on your view on how you see him, which this chapter in this book of the creation of Narnia kind of makes clear to you. So what happens, the story goes... After a series of events, two kids, Diggory and Polly, with the help of Diggory's Uncle Andrew, find their way into this world of Narnia as it is being created. And they bring with them, accidentally, a queen witch named Jadis and a horse and a cabbie. And they enter the pitch black of this world and they they hear music. And all of a sudden, light breaks forth, and they see something pacing back and forth a couple hundred yards away, and and there's all the trembling in all of them at this moment. And what happens is light begins to be more clear, and the song becomes more beautiful, and what happens is they see that it's actually a lion pacing back and forth, and he's actually getting closer little by little as he paces back and forth. But then they start to realize that things are happening in conjunction with the music. With with high falsettos, the sky is being formed and it's it's sort of being painted on and, and things are just happening in this wonderful way and with deep, deep feeling like deep baritone uh, of voices, trees are coming up from the ground and grass is growing and animals are coming up from the ground. And, and what they begin to notice is that it's not music that's playing this entire time. The lion is actually singing. There grows two reactions to this news, two reactions to the lion. The cabbie and the children, they're marveled. They think it's wonderful. There's a sort of reverence about Aslan, a beauty, a fierceness, but a warmth. The witch and the uncle, however, they hate the lion. They they loathe him, so much so that the, the witch tries to attack him and doesn't even work. They become harder, and, and they, they describe Aslan as dangerous and a threat. It gets so bad that Uncle Andrew says he doesn't hear the singing that the children and the cabbie hear. He, he hears the lion roaring. The different vignettes that we have in chapter 3 
and Mark's gospel convey the same idea. We have four different scenes which give us four warnings, four separate times where we consider how we view Jesus, how we are responding to the truth of who we believe him to be. The people in each vignette show us, as Tabidi and Wabile says, that if we don't get Jesus right, we don't get worship right. That the who of worship drives the what of worship, which leads us to our first warning, that Jesus can be acknowledged and not worshipped. The first scene finds Jesus outside the city trying to get away from the crowd. Something, something I've learned, something that I've enjoyed in this time in Mark is that Jesus is Lord of the introverts and extroverts. He calls people to himself and he runs away from people constantly. Oh, I'll be happy about that all myself. Um, he, he seeks out people and he retreats from them. And we know he was retreating in this moment because he goes to the sea and he's done this before. When he wanted to escape the people of Capernaum, he went to the seaside to try and get some alone time. But even there, the crowd follows him. And the crowd gets there and says it was a great crowd, a crowd from all over. It's not just Capernaum. It's a crowd from everywhere, from Judea, from Idumea in the south, from beyond Jordan. That's, that's east, from Tyre and Sidon. That's north and northwest. This is from all over, and it's a testament to the popularity that Jesus was garnering. These are places that had people who were Jews, descendants of Jews, and some even to be considered far away from God because these places represented in a pastime where God's judgment had happened. There's people all over. This shows us that Jesus was attracting all kinds of people to himself. His popularity, his celebrity was not just in Capernaum. It wasn't just in Jerusalem, the big city. It was among the nations. The text says a great crowd. When I was talking to my wife about this, I was like, if you could just think for a second, that like Michael Jordan or like Michael Jackson ambush them, just crush them. They just want to touch him, right? Similar scene right now that we can sort of envision in our minds. But notice, notice the posture of the people. They're gathered there because of Jesus' celebrity and because of their need. They're not there out of worship and faith and belief in him. These people wanted to be healed. They wanted Jesus to be functional to them, not formative. They are acknowledging him. They aren't worshiping him. They acknowledge Jesus was able to deal with their, a theme that we've gone before, uh, their physical plights, but not the liberation of their soul. They wanted to be healed without being cleansed like the leper like the paralytic. Remember, the leper and paralytic both, they came to Jesus with more than just their physical need. They needed a Messiah. These people, they don't have those intentions. This isn't that. These are sick. Some of them are demon-possessed. What's more incredible, what I find, I mean, two times, two times up to this point in Mark, two times has Jesus' sonship been declared. The first time, Mark chapter 1, verse 23, the father 
This is my son, who I'm well pleased. The second time, you remember the synagogue? And right now, the demons, the demons bow down and say, you are the son of God. Not the people, the demons. That's incredible. All that we've, I just ran down the list. All the times Jesus proved he was the son of God. Nobody called him that. Nobody believed it. But don't confuse this. The demons aren't worshiping Jesus. No, no, no. This is like a power play. It's submissive because you know that the work you come to do has been thwarted. That's not worship. That's just acknowledging that you're in the room with someone stronger than you. The crowd and the demons both acknowledging him, not worshiping, not giving him praise as Lord as they should. Family, here's the warning for us. Beware that you are acknowledging Jesus and not worshiping him rightly. Examine your hearts and see for yourself whether Jesus is this sort of plush toy king you pull out when you need to be comforted and need to feel better and not live a life that is totally surrendered, totally worshipful of his kingship, of his sonship, of his deity. Because the honest truth is that the acknowledging of Jesus is not salvific. It's not saving faith to acknowledge Jesus. To see Jesus as a good teacher or like a prophet like Elijah, that's not salvific. That's not worshiping him as Lord and King, as Savior and Messiah. Saving faith is not an intellectual recognition disconnected from the heart of the person. Saving faith is holy and believing the Savior and loving him. Saving faith is trusting and abiding, beholding and adoring. Saving faith is worshipful. This crowd is just acknowledging. The demons are just acknowledging. None of them are worshiping Jesus. Family, where are you acknowledging and not worshiping? Our second warning is that Jesus can be followed, yet not fully known. As Mark does well, he moves fast. And the second scene moves from the seaside to the mountainside. Jesus is up on the mountain and he calls the 12 disciples. He calls these 12 men who were to be separated, separate from the rest of the disciples. These were to be leaders among the people. When Jesus' disciples gathered, there were so many of them and carried so great a need that they're needed, that the ministry demanded more hands. And so Jesus gives these 12 men three distinct responsibilities. Number one, to be with him. That's their job. Be with me. In a more intimate, in a more closely a relational way than the rest of the disciples. They were to watch him and learn from him. 
The second thing is they were to be sent. They were to go and preach the message of the kingdom and be representatives of the king. They were to plant churches, which we'll see later on, and take the gospel message everywhere. Lastly, they were to have the authority to cast out demons. This, This is the key sign, a key sign, okay, that the kingdom of God had come to the earth because it was going to have the power and the authority to drive back the forces of evil. This authority was to show the sovereignty of the king over the plans of Satan. This wasn't to to draw for the apostles to draw attention to themselves as one with gifts. No, this was to show that the great giver of gifts is king of all the kingdoms here on earth. And his kingdom reigns over everything. And they are his ambassadors to have the power to cast out the ones who would stop this mission from being a reality. You see that? These brothers, these were the brothers who would begin the church. Do you feel the weight of this role? These boys were literally the ones who Jesus will use to establish his kingdom. This is no job promotion. This is the beginning of eternal work with eternal consequences. So who were they? Who were they? The first three names are Jesus's inner circle. Of the 12, he had three, right? Three who he brought even more closely, more intimately. He who, he, he, the three, he exposed them to more of himself than the rest of the 12, The first was Simon, who he called Peter. We know Simon already. He was one of the first fishermen who Jesus called out, right? He was the one who we assume Jesus was staying with in Capernaum, right? It was his mother-in-law that Jesus healed. She had the fever, the bedridden, right? And Jesus came in, grabbed her by the hand, said, you can get up. Jesus calls him the rock. The rock. We know Peter for like all the ways that he was down for the cause, right? Jesus is out walking on water. Peter says, call me out. I'll get up. I'll go. The guards show up at the Garden of Gethsemane. Peter takes out the sword. And he's like, let's go. We know him. He's down for the cause. Who are the other two? We have the brothers, James and John, who these boys they don't get enough credit. They were, they were just as down as Peter was, right? Jesus even gives them a nickname, the Sons of Thunder. There's this crazy scene where, like, the people are being neglecting. They're neglecting Jesus, and James and John, they come to Jesus and they go, let's call fire down on these guys. We don't need them. Let's get them out of here. So who's Jesus' inner circle? Three obnoxious, down-for-the-cause brothers. Then we have a group of people, a group of men we don't know too much about. Andrew, Bartholomew, James the Younger, Philip. These brothers, we don't have too much information on. They all have different scenes in the Bible. We know some of them were missionaries. Some of them were previous disciples of John the Baptist. Some of them were other fishermen. There's much debated history on these men. A lot of secondary works you could read on these men. But then we know 
But these brothers had disagreements among themselves. They had disagreements over social and political matters. You remember Levi, the tax collector, or Matthew, right? He was a Roman official. He was considered a political traitor amongst his own people. This is a pro-Rome guy. He supported the Roman conquering of Jerusalem. You could consider him hard on one side of the aisle. And then you got Simon the Zealot was the exact opposite he was on the other side of the spectrum he wanted jewish freedom from rome he wanted to overthrow rome he was a pro-jewish independence revolutionary here's the truth jesus chose both men jesus chose both men he chose the pro-rome guy and the anti-rome revolutionary to come together to be Family, are you hearing how relevant this is? As God would be God, he gives us the text, this specific text this morning in our current political divisive climate to show us two things. One, that these things, these issues, these divisions are not too big for the Lord's mediation and reconciliation. And two, they're not worth breaking fellowship over. If the politics of these brothers that they held about Rome couldn't break up their fellowship or their inner circle, could someone make the argument to me why your political preference matters in the church you choose to congregate at? I can guarantee that some of you and I have differences of political ideas as far as Simon's was from Matthew. And yet we can still be united. And yet we can still be laboring for the Lord's work and his kingdom advances. No one should be leaving a fellowship over simply, hear my words, simply the differences in ideas. The other side of that coin is that if leaders or people are trying to bind the conscience of people with anything other than God's word, it's a different conversation. The point in highlighting these differences is to show that they have especially one thing in common. That Christ unites them. That he is the glue that holds them close together. The differences don't vanish under his lordship. It says very clearly, Simon the Zealot, that's not a diminishing, that's a celebration of his diversity. And it's highlighted to show that Jesus is much more than the tax collector and that he's more than the zealot. He's Lord of all. Is Jesus more than our differences, family? Can Jesus hold us together despite our differences? Because if he can't, the problem is not him. It's us. It's you. It's me. It wasn't just differences that we know these guys for. They're failures. There's failures. Peter denied Jesus three times in public. He was embarrassed of him. John would sometimes stray all the way to the back of the crowds and kind of linger way far back because he didn't want to be seen with the gigantic radical crowd that was Jesus's crew in public. Thomas didn't believe that Jesus was risen, resurrected bodily. Judas literally sold him out behind his back for money. 
All of them left Jesus when he was crucified. It was only John who came back ashamed of himself right before Jesus died. These guys weren't perfect spiritual models and figures. They were earthen vessels. They were jars of clay. They were jugs of mud. These boys were human, as weak and as frail as you and I are. But up to this point, we have to ask, now that we know who they are, we have to ask, who is Jesus to them? Who is Jesus to them? They followed him, but they didn't know him fully. They didn't know the depth of all that it would mean for him to be the son of God. And this shows us, family, that you could follow Jesus and not have a formative, saving understanding with real experiential feeling towards him. You could be in him in name alone. It's possible to think you are his, but not actually be his. I submit the question to you, family. Do you know who Jesus truly is? Do you know who Jesus truly is? And I'll tell you this. People who know who Jesus truly is, they are excited to tell you about him. No? People who truly know Jesus are excited to tell you about who he is. Can I tell you about Jesus this morning? Can I tell you about Jesus this morning? He created the world in beautiful power like a song from the lips of a lion in a children's story. He was the ram provided for Abraham. He was the ark that delivered Noah and his family from the wrath of God and the ark that delivered baby Noah or baby Moses, sorry, from the wrath of Pharaoh. He is the ladder of Jacob bringing heaven down to earth. He is the manna that fell from heaven to nourish his people. Can I tell you about Jesus this morning. He is the rock that was struck so that living water can flow on God's people. He was the tabernacle dwelling constantly among the people. He was the promised land of Canaan with unsearchable riches. He's a better king than David. He's wiser than Solomon. He's stronger than Samson. Can I tell you about Jesus this morning? He's the one who lived a perfect life for imperfect people. The one who liberates the soul and proves it by liberating your body. He's the one who will die to to atone for the sins of the elect. He's the one who will be buried, but that tomb cannot hold him down. He's the one who will rise in three days to prove to you and to me that the Father was satisfied. He was the one who will ascend into heaven, who sits at the right hand of the Father, and one day, oh, he's coming back. He's coming back to make all things new. That is Jesus. Are you telling someone about him? Y'all just going to let me yell at you. And y'all ain't going to yell back. All right, that's cool, man. Oh, I love God, man. The third warning. Our posture towards Jesus can be awaited and yet not received. The scene changes again. We're back in Peter's home, the same one we've seen Jesus in over the last two chapters, and Jesus gets a couple of guests that show up. The crowds, they return in such a mass that he and the disciples, they couldn't even eat. That's frustrating, right? That's frustrating. I have a neighbor, bless her soul. I know if I see her outside and I go outside, I ain't going to do what I got to do outside. She's going to talk to me. She wants to tell me about everything. I got to make sure that when I go out there, it's because I got time to go out there. I mean, sometimes she'll even call us to get me to go do things for her. I can't say no. I feel bad. 
That's just my neighbor. This is a gigantic crowd. Can you imagine? They can't even finish eating. That's not all that shows up. Jesus' family shows up, but we're going to ignore them for one second. We'll come back to them. But look who else shows up. Look who else shows up. The scribes. You remember them from last week, right? You remember the scribes? They've been noticeably missing from verse 7 to verse 22, right? This whole time, we haven't mentioned them not once. If you go back to last week and you look at verse 6, they were busy plotting his destruction. They were busy plotting his destruction. Even today, some of the worst evils have been done and spoken by the religious, right? Why is it noticeable that they are here? Why is it noticeable? Remember, this is the religious elite. They are the keepers of the Old Testament. They had this thing memorized. They were supposed to be the ones who are impatient, eager, longing for the Messiah. They are the ones who are supposed to be awaiting Jesus' entrance into this world, and yet they have not received him. Instead, they add to the accusations they've been lobbying against him. And now they're saying he's possessed. He's possessed by Satan to cast out demons to deceive the people. There is no biblical ground for this claim. This is a lie, a scheme. You remember the authority he gave the apostles? Remember to cast out demons? What was it for? It was to show Christ's kingdom had been manifested into this world. It was to show that this was the real work of the Messiah. It was the key sign of God's work. And they were calling it a work of Satan. Instead of receiving Jesus, the one who they were awaiting, they don't even recognize him. They don't see the signs, the clear signs. And they are working against him. Jesus responds to their accusations with two stories and a lesson. Verse 23 through 26 says, And he called them to him, and he said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. Jesus is essentially saying, Satan is using me to stop himself. How does that make sense? How does that make sense? If Satan's house is divided, then he would have already been destroyed. And that is clearly false. Satan is strong. Jesus was tempted by him personally in the wilderness. He knows. And then he gives another parable. Verse 27, he says, No one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then, indeed, he may plunder his house. I love this parable. Jesus is saying the strong man is Satan. 
The strong man is Satan. He needs to be bound in order for me to plunder his home. And his home is the realm of sin and sickness and demon possession and death. And his possessions are the people who are enslaved by one or more of these things. Jesus is saying, I've come to plunder his house, but first I got to bind him up. He's saying everything I'm doing now is to bind Satan up. Then I will go to his house and I will plunder his goods and I will set the captives free. Then he puts on a a theology clinic for the theologically savvy. Verse 28. Truly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven. The children, the man. And whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever and whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemies against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying he has an unclean spirit. He exposes their theological weaknesses. The scribes were saying that Jesus was filled with the spirit of Satan And that he was casting out the demons. But we know that that's not true. He was filled with God, the Holy Spirit. You remember his baptism? What happened at his baptism? The Holy Spirit descended on him like a dove. And it was the Holy Spirit who led him to the wilderness to do battle with Satan. The scribes, they're supposed to know this. They're supposed to get this. They're supposed to know God in all his depth. This isn't supposed to be new information to them. But instead, they are blaspheming. What is that? It means to insult, to slander, to pronounce derogatory words over God. This is an attitude, not an isolated incident, but an attitude of direct hostility towards God that rejects his saving power over man by the power of the Holy Spirit and the works of Christ. They are calling the work of God, the work of Satan. And Jesus is saying all sin, all sin can be forgiven, but the attitude, a disposition of slander against God, you're not coming back from that. You could feel a little shell-shocked by that statement. You could feel a little weariness with something like that. You may even wonder to yourself, have I done this? I like to hold personally the position that has been shared by preachers historically that says, if you have to wonder it, you likely never done it. In blasphemy, it isn't accidental. It is an intentional hardness of the heart. That hardness keeps a person from wondering if they've blasphemed against God. But to close this point, I tell you, friend, it is entirely possible to be around the things of Jesus like the Pharisees and not have received Jesus. 
to not have received Jesus. To you I say, receive him this morning. He is knocking on your door. Let him in. Receive the gift of faith. Receive him as the son of God. Receive him as the perfect sacrifice of your sins. And confess this morning, I am a sinner in need of the atonement of Christ on my behalf. Receive him this morning. This is the day that the Lord has made for your salvation. If I can quote to Beatty once more, he says, it's possible to feel the Holy Spirit calling you to lay down your life and follow Jesus. And instead of following him, you are walling yourself off. That's not better off than blasphemy. That resistance will lead you to God's judgment. Receive him. You are awaiting him, friend. I promise you, you are. Now receive him this morning. Our final warning. Jesus can even be family. Jesus can even be family and not believed. Go back up to verse 21. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him. For they were saying he is out of his mind. The Greek for seize, uh, for seize is aggressive as it sounds. It means to arrest, to put their hands on him, to grab him. And they think it's for Jesus' own good. They think he's out of his mind. They mean to grab him and forcefully bring him back inside the house, back into reality. This is a heartbreaking moment. Family members who want to put their hands in this way on their own flesh and blood because they believe he's out of his mind. That's a, that's a painful thing. That's not a light thing. And what's more painful is being wrong about your family's mental condition. Can you imagine what this felt like for Jesus? They think, his own flesh and blood, think he's lost his mind because he's doing the Father's will. They don't understand it. They don't understand. They can't grasp it. This is what's what's hanging over verse 21. Jesus walks into that conversation with the scribes that we just talked about. He walks into that conversation with the added weight of being misunderstood by his own family. That's painful. We get back to them in verse 31. And his mother and his brothers came. And standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a great crowd was sitting around him. And they said to him, your your mothers and brothers are outside seeking you. When you were little, you ever get that moment where one of your friends came up to you? Like, yo, your mama looking for you. That wasn't a good thing. (laughs) That wasn't good. That wasn't good. Especially if it was like already tense. One of your friends run up to you and be like, your mama looking for you. You're like, did you do this? And then pray that she didn't see you do that. Mary's so crazy, though. She crazy. She may have been Puerto Rican, man. I don't know. Jesus outside doing ministry with his people. And Mary and the family roll up outside and do this. That's wild. That's crazy. My mom's done it. She's sitting right there. Mary, Joseph, the whole family sitting outside. And Mary tells one of the disciples, she says, hey, man, come here. 
See that man over there? That's my son. Go tell him I'm out here waiting for him. Somebody come up to Jesus. Your mama looking for you. Jesus, Jesus surprises everyone with his response. Surprises everyone with his response. Firstly, because if I said what Jesus said to my mom, I wouldn't feel my mouth for a week because of how hard she hit me. But Jesus, see, I would have said it with malice, though. Jesus says it with meaning. You know, he's God. Um, but it has great meaning. It does. Verse 33, and he answered them, who is my mother and who is my brothers? His family's standing right there. And he goes, who's my mom? Who's my family? You imagine you were a disciple sitting around Jesus in this moment. You're like, oh, dang. Pin drop, quiet. And Jesus looks around the room and he says, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. This is a radical paradigm shift on family and loyalty. You have to understand that in this culture, who you were was rooted in your family name. And Jesus is breaking away from all of that. He's not forsaking his natural family, but what he's doing is highlighting a deeper issue in all of that. He's highlighting a deeper issue with people's relationship to him. In their culture, if your father was a farmer, you're a farmer. You don't have a choice in the matter. Jesus is saying, my loyalty, our loyalty goes beyond physical family tie. Those who do my father's work are my family. This is in the similar vein of the wineskin illustration. It's something, it's something new in a familiar example. Jesus is saying, those who are doing God's will, that's my spiritual kinfolk. Those are my family. But the question needs to be asked then, what is God's will? What is God's will? Jesus answers a similar question to the Pharisees in John 6, verse 29. Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him who was sent. That you believe in him who was sent. That you believe in him. Who did he send? He sent Jesus. We are to trust in Jesus and Jesus alone to rescue us from the coming wrath and judgment of God over this world because of sin. Trust in Jesus that he lived a perfect life on our behalf, sinless and blameless before the Father, and die on the cross bearing the full weight and punishment for our sins. Trust that he resurrected bodily after three days in the tomb and ascended to heaven as a sign as a proof that the sacrifice he gave with his life pleased God. If I can work those four points backwards, we are to believe in him, to receive him, to fully know him and worship him. Would you stand for communion with me?